This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Kirk screwed up once, but never again! Hello everyone, my name is Gambin. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi critique something or other show. I am joined as Adventure. always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Isaac. Hi! And this week we watch Star Trek Original Series episode Obsession. Yes, and this one's not by Animotion. Not everyone knows. I was surprised. I was talking to someone who doesn't know that song. I had to pull it up for them. They're like, what is this 80s, 80s thing you are forcing me to watch? <laughs> but it's so so glorious. It's so 80s. I just had it stuck in my head all freaking week, and I hate it, and it's... Maybe <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll have to th- throw some other uh, 80s alternatives at you that are a little bit more uh, uh, easier on the brain. Yeah, it's so repetitive. Ugh. This episode was written by Art Wallace, who also wrote for the contemporary show Dark Shadows. Is that the one with the vampire? Yes, it's like a, I believe it's like a vampire soap opera. Uh, and then and then they uh, tried to uh, reboot it with a movie more recently, and people were like, "Eh." <laughs> yeah, I wasn't familiar with that, so I didn't get very excited about the movie, and never saw either of them. So there we go. So, so yeah, <laughs> uh, I believe he also wrote another episode of Star Trek. I think so, though I didn't find it in my oh assignment Earth. Yes. You're at Assignment Earth, the failed spinoff. Yep. <laughs> but we'll get to that when we get to that. So I, I think he was like one of a couple writers on that one. So ah. We only have one uh, particular guest star on this episode. We do have a ensign named Rizzo, which I enjoyed because I am more familiar with the Muppets than I am the star treks <laughs> so are we gonna have another bump into this episode uh we're banned not, not so lucky <laughs> i didn't know rizzo the rat was in star trek <laughs> but they are not in the episode for as long so the only notable guest star this week is stephen brooks playing ensign g something garovic yeah I- I kept trying to write uh, Garrick in my notes, but that would just be confusing. <laughs> that would have been a much better episode. <laughs> you know, Doctor, if this whole cloud business was, well, not so spooky, perhaps perhaps we should just, I don't know, put the captain in some sort of holding cell for a while? What do you think about that? Maybe we should do it anyway. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the actor here, uh, uh, Mr. Brooks, uh, he's been a bunch of random things. Um like the FBI. Yeah, apparently it was a major character in a show called The FBI. Yep. <laughs> Something uh, a couple other guest stars have been in too, and it's like, I have never heard of this show before, except for when we started doing this. So. I guess it was a big deal, but it's not one that stuck around. Yeah, it's like, you know, not like a, a single season sort of uh, show either. It's like lasted for a few years, and there's like 60-some episodes at least. I just love how this era of television, like, shows are new enough they don't have to worry too much about repeat names mm-hmm. so they can have shows that are just called very generic things like the fbi or the interns which you know he was also in <laughs> <laughs> or 
or the invaders, which he was also in. <laughs> what in the world were interns in the 60s? Like, were they still just unpaid jobs that you have to do with the promise of a job you never get in our modern millennial hellscape? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing so. It just, it was more, you know, you know, you know, people's like, oh, this is just part of the thing. And then you get, you know, we'll just hire you on after a year or two and, uh, and then you'll get paid big bucks or something like that. But, but maybe you know, they actually it? did it. Yeah, maybe they actually still did it then. <laughs> maybe that there wasn't just a way to get free labor and not have to pay health insurance. You know, before uh, the, you know, the businesses figured out, oh, we could actually you know double exploit these people. Oh, yeah. Uh, Brooks was also in another The Show, uh, The Manhunter. Mm, I've heard of that one. So that was the, the mid-70s, apparently like a, a random guest stars. Anywho. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we spent way too long talking about him. But there's not a lot in this episode, so... Yeah, it's a, it's an episode that's mostly about uh, the the characters interacting, not necessarily big ideas. So. It's fairly action focused. It's an enjoyable one, and it stays very laser focused on what it's doing. Yes, there's not a lot of else happening in this episode. So we should probably get into it, or is there anything yeah. else we need to? Like, no, let us cover. just jump right in here. We can jump, jump. We open with Kirk, Spock, and some random crew members conducting a mineral survey of a planet with deposits of tritanium, which I always thought was an alloy. Apparently it's a rock. It's a big, heavy rock. <laughs> it is 20 times harder than diamonds. We need to be, like, everyone is so freaking infatuated with diamonds. Like, that's it's always, people go like, oh my god, harder than diamonds. Oh, uh, cool, uh, that means we got another thing we can use that's of that sort of ridiculous strength then okay <laughs> yeah but like that's not very useful like they keep talking about like a metal like diamonds are very bad for building things they're good for grinding things yep you can't build stuff out of diamonds it's they're too brittle sort of uh you know uh you know crazy stresses here and there and then suddenly oh we got you know it's falling under its own weight breaking itself oh god <laughs> they're getting ready to leave the planet after their miraculous rock that they broke off a tiny, tiny chunk of with phaser. Also, this rock, he hits it, and it makes a clunky styrofoam noise. He goes, solid. <laughs> Ignore the sound, sound you just heard. Solid. Ignore this hollow styrofoam. Thum. They're preparing to leave when Kirk smells something. Something I've not smelt since. Find the rebels alive. Put the thing on the Millennium Falcon. Ah! <laughs> There's also a little bit of a thing with this, this little smoke thing going on. but Yeah, we'll you see these little way. wisps of smoke. It's actually kind of neat. They show the smoke moving around. They'll like show the smoke kind of pouring over a rock, and then they'll play it in reverse like it's running away. Yep. They'd kind of like that. Apparently, they're all smelling the odor of honey, and this freaks Kirk out, and he orders his men to look around for a gaseous cloud to scan for some sort of weird unknown element that's not particularly important, and to shoot the thing immediately on sight. Uh, look out for dicrotonium, uh, and if you get attacked by bees, I apologize. This confuses everybody. Uh, and it also doesn't work because it attacks some crew members who die and one who's named Rizzo winds up in critical condition. Oh no, not Rizzo! Apparently, whatever this thing is, is removing all of their red corpuscles. So, um, all that uh, iron in their blood is apparently getting uh, eaten or something. Uh, and I wasn't as familiar with this. Apparently, corpuscle is just an alternate name for a blood cell. Oh, uh, it's just red blood cells. It's a vampire. It is. <laughs> Stark shadows all over again. They just love the. That's just just. We first we had the salt vampire who mm -hmm. just removes salt, and everyone's oh my god. And then we have the 
vampire vampire. And it was like, that's impossible. <laughs> vampire cloud. They return to the ship where Kirk decides that they are going to stay on this planet until he figures out what is attacking his crew, despite the fact that they are scheduled for a rendezvous to pick up perishable medical supplies that are badly needed on another colony. So we're going to stick around on this planet because the captain says so, just so we're 100% clear, because he has a... He has a bad feeling about this or something like that. Die, guys die, which is, is terrible, but he did kind of send them out to go find this thing. So whatever. Um, so you know, it's, it's, it's technically his fault there. It but, is a little weird. Like, I understand. Yeah. Everyone's very obsessed the whole episode. Mm -hmm. It's like, but medical supplies. We have to go. And he, like, I, I get where they're coming from. It doesn't seem weird in the episode. But on the other hand, he's like, several people just got killed under mysterious circumstances by something that should be medically and physically impossible. Yes. Everyone just wants to go, oh, well, and leave. You kind of look at it from different points of view, and it's like everyone's being kind of ridiculous, but also at the same time not. So it's yes. like, so it's, it's 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 sort of an interesting dynamic there. Kirk has McCoy wake up Rizzo, who survived the attack, to confirm that he smelled something sweet, and asks if he like sensed intelligence from the gas cloud, which maybe it's unclear. He's not really communicating very well. Uh, Rizzo might be arisen, but he's not arisen that enough to make make much sense. This apparently gives Kirk what he wanted, though, and he points McCoy to some old medical records of officers dying this same way about 11 years before. That seems like a higher priority thing to check out, because, you know, uh, if this is something that's happened before, maybe they have some clues about maybe how to, you know, not have it happen again if people run into it. Yeah, I'll get to it when he gets to it. <laughs> On the bridge, Kirk continues to ignore everyone telling him they need to pick up medical supplies and instead asks Spock to speculate about the thing that may have attacked the crew since they cannot detect it on sensors. And if they assume that it is something intelligent, it is capable of changing its molecular structure at will. Kirk points Spock to the same medical records that he told McCoy about and also runs off to have a look. And then Kirk meets with the new security officer named Garavik. Kirk apparently knew this guy's father, and Kirk takes him and a new party down to the planet in order to track down the gas cloud again. So a uh, guy we've just named, so you probably are going to survive for a little bit longer. Uh, and a couple of red shirts for you and a couple of red shirts for me. And let's split up. Yep. Split the party. Yep. <laughs> they find the gas cloud. It goes exactly the same way as last time. And also Rizzo died in the meantime. So that's three men down and one more in critical condition. And uh, Garavik survives. He, in fact, uh, tried to uh, phase the, the gas cloud. But eh. Yep. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy debrief Garavik about what happened because he is one of the only survivors. And he describes a large gas cloud that hovered in front of him before rushing at the crew but he can't tell if it was intelligent or not. Kirk keeps asking about this intelligence thing in a weird way that, I don't know, it doesn't make any sense till later. Are you say saying that it's hunting you specifically, that it wants revenge? Uh, what gives Kirk? It's like, does it feel intelligence? Not did it look intelligent? Did it move around in an intelligent way? It's just, did it feel intelligent? When it was uh, touching you slightly, uh, did, did it feel weird at all? It also comes out that Garavik did not fire at the glass cloud when it was holding still because he spent a few seconds hesitating. Kirk has no tolerance for this and confines Garavik to quarters. Um, okay, Kirk, it seems a little harsh, but okay. Everyone thinks this is an overreaction. <laughs> 
Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Back on the bridge, Scotty has decided to clean radioactive gunk out of the engines, but says they'll be ready to leave soon, but Kirk has no intention of leaving, which prompts more reminders that they need to pick up medical supplies for a colony that needs medical supplies. Yes. Medical <laughs> supplies. Hey guys, let me uh, t- tell you about my medical supplies that are due to the colony. Uh, uh, what about that? But he is sick of everyone conspiring against him. Oh no. He's also very angry that they can't detect the gas cloud. Yes. So, so are people also conspiring about not be- being able to detect the gas cloud, Kirk? Uh, you're acting a little strange here. Full on Kirk paranoia. Wait a moment. Wait a moment. Didn't we just have an episode where this, something like this happened? Yeah. And Maybe. they had to organize a tribunal and determine yeah. whether he was fit for command with yep. a bunch of officers speaking out and a kind of judge jury thing going on. Yep. Are we going to have that again? No. Oh, oh okay. Spock comes to speak with McCoy because he needs advice, something McCoy is very dubious of and makes fun of him for because they have such a great work dynamic. I I, I think these guys need to, like, figure out how not to hate each other. Where is HR? Yes. (laughs) Wait, HR is technically Kirk, so that might explain to some things. Yep. As it turns out, Spock is confused by Kirk's obsession because it is an irrational feeling that he will have nothing to do with or try to understand because he is Mr. Vulcan Science Man. So I, I need to both understand it, but I also don't care. So um, to help. And after they looked at the records that McCoy was too busy to look at, but, you know, thankfully Spock knows what he's doing a little bit. Yep. He discovered an incident about 11 years ago where the crew of another ship called the USS Farragut had half of the crew die in a very, very similar way, including the Captain Garavik, who is the father of their new security officer, and one of the few surviving crewmen was a young officer named James T. Kirk on his first assignment. Wait a moment. Did, did Kirk lure the gas cloud into the Farragut and uh, you know, use it to murder everyone in order to get himself a promotion? Probably. I mean, that sounds more likely. <laughs> Uh, it's just something about him shooting it, and it was a hesitation as well. But we'll get to that later. We're dealing with like a lore scenario where he's he's bringing the weird weird crystal critter around to kill people for no reason. Yep. <laughs> and I communicated using this. Ooh. At this point, McCoy and Spock decide that they need to confront Kirk in his quarters because his single-minded obsession with something that may have attacked him 11 years ago has possibly made him unfit for command, and apparently they changed the rules after last time which is probably a good call because they don't need a big old hearing mccoy just has to enter something in his log about whether the captain is medically fit uh, maybe it's because mccoy is actually medically fit at this point that they don't have to have the whole thing but that might be giving the show too much credit <laughs> yeah i think so i think it's just two different writers didn't know what they were doing yep <laughs> so instead of the big old courtroom scene they just ask him questions about what happened so that mccoy can fill out his medical journal mm-hmm. kirk tells him that they are 11 years Years ago, he had the opportunity to fire on the gas cloud, and he hesitated the same way that Garavik did. Dun, dun, dun. And he believes that this action led to the death of hundreds of his crewmates. So there might be a little guilt there. Hmm. Even though the other survivors listed him as acting with unparalleled bravery during the whole affair. Wait a moment. The unparalleled bravery? Maybe he did get a promotion because of this. He believes, based on his contact with the gas cloud when it was trying to kill him 11 years ago, that it is an intelligent being, and indeed may be the same creature that they encountered on the ship halfway across the galaxy. And so if it is intelligent and is the same creature, it would pose a significant threat to populated planets. So So, uh... apparently it's just been 
doing nothing for 11 years. I guess floating through space? Just then, Chekhov detects the gas cloud leaving the planet and heading into space. Very convenient timing. Yeah, so I guess Kirk wasn't just sort of pulling all this crap out of his ass. It actually can't go into space. Kirk orders the Enterprise to give chase, but the creature is traveling at near their max speed, which is delaying the chase and putting too much strain on the ship for them to catch up. Also, Scotty was uncharacteristically sloppy earlier and left a vent open when he was cleaning the engines. Yeah, the, the whole uh, radioactive thing he was talking about uh, cleaning out and... Uh, uh, I guess that kind of sort of happened and then they didn't finish the job. There's some half necessary scenes about Nurse Chapel bringing Garavik some food when he's under house arrest. She tricks him into eating the food with a made up doctor threat and he gets upset because he blames himself for hesitating and not killing the creature. Then later when he's eating, he gets mad, throws his plate cover at the wall and breaks something next to a vent. A little switch, I guess, is the uh, thing that controls the, uh, the the air conditioning, I guess? Yeah, he breaks his air conditioner. Tank Arabic, you, you know, you're gonna get all warm and hot in there now. They're forced to call off the chase because the creature is still going, but the ship can't take it anymore, but the creature then slows down and starts moving toward the ship. Kirk orders all hands to battle stations, something that Garavik hears, and despite having been confined to quarters, decides that he needs to report to the bridge. It's action man away! On the bridge, he he asks for something to do, but everyone mostly ignores him because they're too busy trying to shoot the gas cloud. Phasers! Photon torpedoes! Those torpedoes explode a little close. Um, maybe we shouldn't do that. Um... The phasers and photons have no effect, and the creature passes right through their shields. Spock says he should have known that. I don't know why, but okay. Well, they, they sort of imply that it's basically this weird mishmash of matter and, and, uh, and energy, and it's just kind of phasing in between... Each so it can sort of, I guess, transform into energy at appropriate times to get through the shields, maybe? I guess. And if there's one thing we know about energy is that it's completely unaffected by other energy. Yeah. Well, there is a superposition. But anyway, <laughs> on, go on. <laughs> the gas cloud then enters the ship through the open vent that we were complaining about a minute ago. Yep. It attacks two crew members and then goes into the air vents. They closed it off, but now they only have enough air to last them a few more hours. Hmm. McCoy gets mad about more crewmen getting killed off because Kirk is trying to go after a gas monster. But... The gas monster, like, went into... I don't know what McCoy's still weird about. <laughs> like, it's it's definitely dangerous and clear and present threat to other planets. And it might kill them all right now. But Spock is now also convinced that they need to do something about this gas monster thing. He also knows that since they couldn't kill it with conventional weapons, because it can apparently manipulate space-time to travel, Kirk didn't do anything wrong 11 years ago, because if he had shot the thing, it wouldn't have done anything. So what you're saying is... Doesn't matter how much he hesitated or not, you know, his phasers would have done nothing. Yeah, oddly, this does not immediately cure Kirk of his 11-year-old trauma, but Spock decides that it's just so clever he has to go share some ideas with Garavik. But this time he tries telling him that screwing up is just a normal thing that humans will do because of emotions, so don't worry about it. Yeah, Spock is super not helpful, but this gets Spock in the room with Garavik when something else starts happening. Yes, partway through his uplifting speech, we see gas pouring out of the vent in Garavik's quarters. Oh no, it's because he broke his vent thing majig, and yeah. Yep, Spock tries to close the vent, but it's broken, so he decides that he's going to just put his hands over the vent to hold the gas in. Now, for a moment, I thought he might be trying to mind meld with it, but nope. He is soon enveloped. Oh no, Spock. I'm pretty sure that's when they cut to commercial. Yep. <laughs> Kirk arrives. They turn the air vent to reverse to suck the great 
gas creature back up, and Spock is fine because he doesn't have hemoglobin. Well, they say that he has green hemoglobin. Yeah, you know, which is a little confusing, but you know. <laughs> yeah, that's as we talked about in a previous episode. That is cyanoglobin. He, he's got the copper. Not the iron. Yeah, hemo is iron bit. So he's immune to the thing because he doesn't have red blood cells for it to eat. So it's like, yeah, I'm not going to eat you. I'm just going to leave now because I'm being pulled out here by a ventilation system. Being close to the creature now, Kirk smells something that makes him understand all of its motivations. Oh no, Kirk has smell vision He who smelt it. <laughs> also, the creature leaves and heads back into space and runs away. Uh, I should point out that uh, Scotty, uh, you know, in order to try to corral it in the uh, ventilation system, apparently filled their entire ventilation system with radio ra- uh, radioactive material. Yeah. So... <laughs> It's fine. They've got adrenaline. Yes. They'll be able to get through this. No problem. They, just got, they got a shot for this. Kirk takes some time to tell Garavik that his hesitation didn't make any difference in saving people. This is the big takeaway we're supposed to have from this episode, apparently. You know, it's okay to, you know, to hesitate, to, uh, you, know, you, know, you did nothing wrong. You did what you could. Sort it's of okay to make mistakes as long as you realize later that your mistakes didn't make any difference. I guess. Eh? <sighs> They chase the creature again, but this time it quickly moves out of range. However, this time, because of smell connection, Kirk knows where it's going. To the, to the Tycho star system, planet four! He thinks that the creature wanted to go home, and he makes this weird logical leap that home is where it attacked his old ship. I guess that is where he saw it last, and it is a little bit of a leap that if this thing can travel through space wherever it likes, that it would have run into them previously on this particular planet but okay yep but this is the this is the part of the episode where we just start making logical leaps galore yes leaping left and right in fact mccoy is more miffed about delays in getting their medical supplies but spock thinks that because the creature is returning home that means it's going to reproduce through fission and not just once but hundreds or thousands of times because we know this for reasons (laughs) So now they need to track it down and kill it, which they can do with a big antimatter bomb, because for some reason that will work when their earlier things didn't work. I guess? I, well, they, they try to uh, bend the logic that, you know, it's matter and energy, but not antimatter. So if you have antimatter, that means it's it's going to do the thing. Sure. <laughs> That's not how antimatter works. They plan to take a large antimatter bomb to the planet and bait it with their medical supplies of hemoglobin that they have on board and blow up half the planet's atmosphere, which will make it difficult to transport out and put the ship in danger. But, you know. Yeah, that happens all the time. So, you know, they're used to it. Despite Spock being immune to the creature, Kirk decides that he and Garavik should go down. So, uh... Both people with some uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder going on with this creature here are going to be put right into it to, to face their fear, I guess? Yeah, I guess. That's fun. Though I guess Garavik wouldn't have post-traumatic stress yet because this happened yeah. like two hours ago. Preemptive. They beam down carrying a big blue bomb. It's, it's, it's pretty pretty. And they kind of pick it up and move it away from where they beam down for reasons. They have a brief aside about how this should be the most powerful man ever becomes. This big old bomb. Because... Power is only as far as, you know, power in the, the very literal, uh, you know, uh, energy over time sort of moment here, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. Don't build bigger bombs. This has been our political messaging for the episode. We may now continue with our gas vampire. Speaking of. They take too long to set up the bomb. And when they turn around to grab their jar of bait, it eats it. Oh, no. 
the uh, the 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 jar full of red stuff is now full of clear stuff. So I guess it's just plasma left over. Yep. Now they can't bait the trap because for some reason the gas cloud being ten feet away from the giant bomb that's going to blow up half the planet is too far away. Yep. <laughs> when you know miles shouldn't matter. It's feet they're worried about. <laughs> Kirk decides to use himself as bait. Garavik tries to knock him out and do a heroic sacrifice thing, but Kirk slaps him and tells him to stop it. Yeah, uh, Kirk's too high level. He has too many hit points for a uh, one-hit uh, uh, knockout here. That so. is one bit that I, just, I loved. It's like, oh no, heroic sacrifice. No, stop, stop it, stop it. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> You're named Red Shirt. That means you're you're worth something. We, we could do something with you, guy Garavik. We might be able to get you out, get you through this. You don't have to self-sacrifice yourself, man. They stand behind the bomb so that the gas creature has to move over it to get to them. Then, as soon as it does, they order them to blow up the planet and beam them out of there. Um, hopefully, beam them out first and then blow up the planet. We see a fairly janky-looking explosion as they are beamed away. It takes a long time for them to be beamed up, but. They're fine, and it never seemed as if they were any in danger, so that was five extra minutes and nothing. Yeah, this takes a ridiculously long time. It's, I guess, cross-check to the buffer B or something like that. Scotty thanks heaven that it worked, and Spock's offended because he did all the work, not some god. So then they hail Satan. Hail Satan! They run off to collect them medical supplies, and Kirk says he's going to tell Garavik some stories about his dad. The end. So um, that's a thing that happened. Yeah. They really, really want to hammer in this Spock has pointed ears like yep. the <laughs> devil. So he's obviously untrustworthy and evil or something like that? But it's just, it's kind of weird to me that they are putting that in so much because in the original uh, screen tests and things they were doing for Spock, they decided to change his skin tone because mm -hmm. they originally had kind of a darker skin tone that they were afraid would read as red and devil-like on black and white televisions. That might, might spook some people. It's like, oh no, it's that, that Satan-worshipping program. Oh. <laughs> but for some reason now they're just fine. It's like, hail Satan and his pointy little pitchforks. Because, uh, you know, uh, visuals affect people more than words context like <laughs> words and but i'm fine with it. the satanists are fun i like them they do really weird cool political things yeah fun group they know how to to uh you know leverage things in a responsible fashion so so we get yeah. to talk about trauma and ptsd and generational trauma and stress responses so do you want to talk about first what chemical agents smell like um sure um i, I didn't even think about uh, this uh, sort of approach thing but uh yeah there was a definitely a smell aspect to it because the other uh, creature is able to like give off some sort of odor uh and that says perhaps uh, indicative of something uh, what do you got captain they keep talking about like how it smells sweet so i did just find i didn't expect to find this i just find a random list of harmful chemical weapons and what they smell like so hmm. sulfur mustard which is more commonly known as mustard gas is usually odorless but it can be kind of mustardy like you would expect or also like uh, garlic or horseradish. Interesting. So some things that I, I generally like. I do do like my, my mustard and garlic, so. Yep, I just like me my horseradish. I once accidentally put too much horseradish on a on a sausage that I was eating and couldn't get it near my face. It's a good <laughs> level of horseradish when you put it near your face and it just goes, no, you are not not doing that. My, my, my face, it, it will not respond. It will not get closer. Yes. <laughs> it's like an aura. Then we got chlorine glass, which obviously smells like chlorine. Mm -hmm. 
So if you've cleaned your pool or used bleach. Yeah, so that one should be pretty familiar. Got a couple of odorless things, like three... This is something called three quintilidinezy benzylate, which is odorless. Uh, Say that 12 times fast. This is something called lewisite, which was uh, a World War I chemical weapon, which apparently smells very strongly of geraniums. So a flower, but... Not when I don't remember the, uh, I particularly remember the smell of right now. So far, we haven't gotten anything honey. Sugar, sugar, honey, honey. Phosphine oxamide is another blistering agent with an irritating smell that some call like cut hay or green corn. Wait a moment. <clears throat> Gentlemen, behold, corn! Got a few more odorless things that aren't very fun. Uh, Soman, which is a nerve gas, smells of Vicks Vaco rub or rotting fruit. Hmm. Those are slightly different. Depends on who's smelling it, I guess. Okay. <laughs> uh, but it's a nerve gas. So are are these people like maybe, you know, are they half dead already? Oh, God. Uh, Tabern is a highly toxic nerve agent that smells slightly fruity. Hmm. And then you've got uh, Zyklon B, which is a cyanide. So it smells like bitter almonds to some people if you have the gene that makes you smell bitter almonds i'm not i'm not too much of a fan of almonds so maybe i have that gene and hydrogen sulfide which smells like rotten eggs i remember that smell in chemistry class whoops it's like the day we all had to leave chem lab because someone accidentally put the wrong agent in their thing and like why aren't my chemical salts evaporating so that i can weigh them it's like because you're using the sulfuric acid and we all have to leave yes (laughs) just i'm gonna put this in the fume hood and turn it on and then we'll be back in maybe a few hours (laughs) don't boil sulfuric acid in chem lab still remember that time i accidentally got a little spray of uh, sulfuric acid in in chemistry class it was all right it only got on my shirt but my shirt had little tiny holes in it so (laughs) i never got up to that kind of level of chem lab it was fairly dilute, so you know there's only a few small holes. But it's like, yeah, these weren't here last time. So <laughs> uh, this I thought was slightly interesting because we don't usually talk about people freezing as much anymore, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's coming back. Like like I'm not saying no one mentioned, but when I was growing up, I remember everyone was very on the fight or flight response idea, and that's all anyone would talk about. And it's only recently that it's come back in that it's actually freezing is also something that happens very often in stressful situations. Yeah, it's actually something that I try to include more often in when I in my writing when uh, uh, someone's like spooked by something, because you know that's all enough something that I'm more prone to because I'm not necessarily going to freak out and run. Or, uh, you know, try to uh, toss my fists at something uh, unless there's, you know, something very, very obviously is, is trying to, like, physically harm me immediately. Yeah. If there's something that's like, this is freaking me out. Oh, God, what's going on? Then I'm like, uh. <laughs> yeah, it takes you a minute. And it's interesting. It was just interesting that that I guess they were talking about it before in the 60s and it fell out of favor somewhere in there. Because mm. I remember everyone was complaining about how no one talks about it. Yeah. Hmm. So let's talk about it. <laughs> well, there's just the, you got your fight and flight or freeze response, which is just your general stress response. And I think freezing, I think it may depend on the person, but freezing does seem a lot more common. It makes sense because you mm-hmm. evaluate what's going on. Because, uh, yeah, if you try to run away, uh, there is, you know, a you know, possibility that you, you know, there's sort of the social pressures of like, well, now I look foolish for like freaking out and running off when this thing was obviously not 
you know, meant to harm me. And so there's maybe sort of a, 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 a psychological restructuring that's sort of uh, discouraging that response on one end. Also, humans generally not fast compared to other animals. We, we tend to be long distance runners, not, not quick ones. And, uh, and on, the, on the fight side, well, if you, you know, get freaked out because your friend spooked you from behind and you punch him in the face, you might end up in a fight. That's your friend's, or alternatively, you just, your friend has a bloody nose and they're really upset with you now, uh, which is maybe another sort of uh, thing that's, as far as, uh, you know, you know, general, you know, human learning and things like that is maybe something that we've, you know, been, been sort of pushing ourselves to try to resist that response. And so, yeah, then that leaves the freezing response. Um, and I might be talking my ass out of my ass here, uh, Gepwin, so feel free to correct me. <laughs> um, so, and so, so uh, it's sort of a elimination of the other possibilities as the number one go-to, though they might still be uh, uh, primary in, in some people. I think it mainly depends, and it's not exactly something we know for sure. Like the whole fight-and-flight response thing is just a very neurochemical way of talking about your brain and how it gets flooded with adrenaline and such like when you're startled. Uh, yeah. I, did, I do remember seeing this thing... Uh, a year or so ago where they were talking about stress responses and uh, the people who do react quickly in in unlikely and stressful situations uh, tend to be people who already are freaked out like you have already gone through something or maybe you have some traumatic history and you're just generally freaked out in situations so you're basically already on edge so you don't need to take the minute to get into that state you know i guess there's even an example with, with me specifically that's sort of a situational sort of version of that uh where you know when i was uh you know growing up i was a little paranoid of drowning um still maybe am but i'm much more competent in the water nowadays but um you know the you know you know, you know so once when i was young my, uh, you know, I went on a trip with my dad, uh, long story short, uh, we ended up at the, the whole Disney World place there and uh, the, the Typhoon Lagoon uh, wave pool. Are you familiar with that at no, all? No, I've never been to Disney World. But, uh, well, uh, it's a large uh, wave pool, uh, you know, that, of course, you know, has the little wave thing at the far end and that, that far end is like 15 feet deep or some crazy amount uh you know even for a wave pool but this thing's like massive so in order to get the you know the full wave effect you know uh, all the way through it's going to be have to be pretty deep on that end and then at some point uh you know once, once we were in the wave pool we we're enjoying it the waves stop and then there's this weird whistle up above on the mountain uh you know the you know, fake mountain behind the pool and then suddenly whoosh the wave pool produces a wave that effectively like doubles the depth of the pool wherever it's at and me with a you know that sort of in you know, you know you know sort of some bad experiences involving water and things like that and a little bit paranoid about you know the deep end and things like that realize very quickly that when that wave gets to where i'm at it's going to be way over my head because i'm still you know, a young kid at this point and so Knowing that my options for flight were limited, I proceeded to climb my dad and ended up on his shoulder somehow. <laughs> because that was the only place I could run to with, and you know, before that, you know, the giant wave came and uh, you know uh, got to me. Of course, by the time we got to that part of the pool, it was a lot less, uh, uh, you know, monstrous. It was much more reasonable, but still, as uh, the, the top of the wave was like at my dad's head level so, so it's like oh my god i survived oh yeah there has been some uh some kind of recent theorizing that that's what 
traumatic effects are actually for. That's why we, we develop these kinds of symptoms. Well, not exactly the symptoms, but that is why, like, when something traumatic happens to you, you have that kind of reaction. Because when you learn that, you go like, oh, I, used, I was in a similar situation to this before, and something bad happened. So now I need to be ready for something bad to happen. So I, uh, you know, I'm going to react in what my, you know, you know, my my experiences tells me I should be reacting as, and then I will, in, you know, engage that program. But then suddenly I'm on someone's shoulders. And quite interestingly, this episode also gave us some of the ways that that kind of reaction, which actually seems to be fairly normal and standard, might turn into something like PTSD. This is somewhat contested because they haven't done all of the research and there's some anthropological data that they are you know, missing or working on or haven't quite looked into. Uh, but it seems that uh, post-traumatic stress is a Western problem. Hmm. This is something that does not appear to happen in other cultures, especially like third world cultures or we consider developing cultures. Uh, the PTSD just does not occur. And that means one of several things, that that's the thing they are unsure about. It could mean that it's happening but it's just not reported maybe there's a cultural stigma surrounding it uh, it could mean that it's presenting in a different way they have it but culturally it presents in such a different way that we don't recognize it as ptsd mm -hmm. or it could mean that something we are doing in our culture is creating this this disorder so a, a confluence of uh you know the, the original stressors and other factors in our lives might be uh generating this the 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 the, the, uh, the 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 net effect and it it seems to be that there's some evidence that having a way to culturally deal with stressful and traumatic things that happen may be one of the factors because you have you have some cultures like there were there's some stories from like ancient greece where when you came back from war there was like a particular thing that you would go through they in fact treated uh, traumatic stress injuries in exactly the same way as a physical injury and you would do different things there's there's various cultural things throughout history that you can point to but you have this sort of kind of ritual that you go through when you come back from something like a military campaign that is like you went through something horrible and now you're going through this ritual whatever it happens to be for your culture and then you re-enter society as a normal person again. It's sort of a, a mental decompression sort of thing where you're, you're unwinding your experience in this particularly set uh, manner in order to help transition back to normal life. And also kind of just combined with the idea that as a society, we recognize that something unusual and bad happened to you. Mm -hmm. And you need time to deal with it. If you look at how yes. we handle this in our culture now, you're supposed to come back from being a deployed soldier and just, you know, have a video of your dog missing you posted on the internet and then be fine. And everything's good. You know, we, we thank you for your service and we'll we'll say that a bazillion times for you. And then we'll that's all, that's all you need, right? And I thought that this episode was interesting showing that side of things because uh, you get into a couple things with Kirk's situation that I'll get into. But what they were doing with uh, Garavik when he hesitated and he felt bad and Kirk blamed him for it. And instead of them talking about it in any way or being like, that was bad. And, you know, maybe you should look, work on your training or something. But, you know, mm -hmm. it happens. He freaks out and confines him to quarters. So, like, of course, he's going to feel 
super guilty and shameful, and that's probably going to turn into something bad for him. Indeed. So, and, and this is sort of a case where you know someone who is you know having it, you know to deal with his own uh, sort of demons on this uh, is not. Is, is being super unhelpful to somebody else as sort of, I guess, a lashing out in a way? Well, that's kind of an interesting idea because there's there's some various theories on this, uh, but in, in sort of the models that I like, you basically will treat other people in similar situations to how you would treat yourself in that situation or you believe you should be treated in that situation. So since Which... in this particular instance, Kirk heavily blames himself for letting his crew get killed through taking a similar a action, he really, really blames Garavik for that. And he is punishing Garavik because he feels so much shame himself about the part of him that hesitated. So seeing that in someone else makes him treat them in the same way that he's treating that part of himself. Exactly. So, uh, you know, maybe it's time that uh, Kirk sort of uh, started to work on this himself then. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Which is also an interesting one on the trying to prove that it didn't matter. And that that shouldn't be necessary. No. Because, you know, stuff happens in stressful situations and sometimes we do make mistakes. Well, there's, and... an there's a thing that I was watching recently. There was this little video. It was just talking about something with, with validating children's feelings. But mm -hmm. it basically was doing that. Like, if, you, if someone comes up and says, oh, I made this mistake and I feel like it had a negative consequence. If you just go, oh no, it's fine. All you're doing is saying the way you feel about this situation is incorrect. Yeah, I'm trying to dis disprove you, what you're uh, you know, f feeling emotionally as opposed to confronting that emotion directly. Yeah, you can't talk about the emotion if you talk about it logically and just go, well, if you actually look at it logically, you didn't really make this mistake that you feel like you made. Which, all you're doing is discounting the way someone feels about a situation, not giving them a way to work through it. Which I... Which we'll get to the the, the bit with Spock and Garavik there and Spock is trying to basically <laughs> make an even worse version of all this uh when you know when he comes to his quarters there it's like Spock just just shut up go away well weirdly so if he hadn't been doing it weird and logically that probably would have been a better approach cuz he didn't come in and go actually you couldn't have hurt the thing even if you did shoot it so it doesn't matter he is going like, everyone freezes up. This yeah. is like a normal reaction, and it stinks, and I'm like, it, you feel bad about it, but it's like not abnormal, and it's something that you can deal with. Spock still has to sort of like, oh, yeah, this is a normal human thing, so don't feel bad about yeah, it. Yeah, well, Spock's being all logical. It's like, I don't get it. This is just a normal thing. Why do you feel bad, you weird human? Yeah. That's pretty unhelpful. You probably shouldn't yes. let Mr. Logic try to talk to people about traumatic instance. So, yeah, yeah. So some people pride themselves in, in trying to be Mr. Logic. And you should maybe recognize more often than when you're not going to be helpful when you make try, uh, try to do that sort of thing with people. But so. you can't logic away emotion. Exactly. You're going to wind up like suppressing them, which is bad. It doesn't work mm -hmm. very well. <laughs> I understand that this is a, like, I do this sometimes too. It's something I'm trying to work on. But if you have an emotion that you feel uncomfortable about and you just try to push it away, that usually just makes them try harder. I feel like, like I have something more to say, but I'm not sure what, what it would be quite yet. So This episode is like weirdly light on substance. It sort of touches upon these things and, uh, you know, it does them better than most Star Trek probably does at this era. 
Um, but it is, you know, still fairly light as far as, far as other stuff going. Yeah, is. I did think it was interesting uh, watching through uh, Next Generation again recently. Mm-hmm. How much they bring in that they have a therapist on board. Yeah. And it's a very interesting kind of, th- I guess it's the kind of therapy that they had during that time, which was a little sweet spot in there. Because uh, mm-hmm. they always deal with this kind of stuff. They have a whole episode about someone's husband had died and they're trying to deal with it. And like the entire episode is just this person coming back to the counselor over and over and like very slowly working through the fact that something horrible happened to them. Uh, you know, it's you know something that, that, that it's... In order to heal, there is a, a certain amount of I'm trying to avoid uh, the the term emotional labor, but there is a, a a bit of work you have to sort of put into it uh, that is can be very painful and is very much helped by having someone there you can you know, actually sort of you know uh, you know converse with, uh, even if it's just sort of you know bouncing ideas and thoughts off of that maybe even are completely unrelated. But, yeah, uh, it gets a little complicated. And I don't want to speak directly to too much of it because I do feel like it's it's somewhat individualized and it's very complicated to get into in 10 minutes of episode. But, yes. <laughs> but the, the weird thing, I guess, with this, I guess not weird, but it kind of just highlights one of the problems that I have with the way they present Kirk in these shows. It's like Kirk is your mildly abusive 50s dad and mm-hmm. you're supposed to look up to him for that and go, oh, good job, abusive 50s dad. Because he just he sent someone to their room for making a mistake that he felt bad that he made one time. Yeah, it's I learned it from you, Dad. But yeah, this is sort of how this is supposed to be how things work here, and we're going to be you know strong and uh, you know and, and, and sharp jawed here, and um, you are going to live up to the standards I could not live up to, or else. Yeah. And I just love that he, he he literally sent someone to their room. Yep. There's <laughs> also just to get it out there as the second episode we've had based on Moby Dick because they just love yep. this. Uh, and the, the, the I, I think the uh, you know, the previous uh, incarnation I think I preferred uh, to this one, but uh, this one wasn't terrible. So I think the Doomsday Machine handled it a little bit better because it wasn't Kirk. Mm-hmm. When in this show, if Kirk is obsessed with something. He's one hundred percent right about it. Yes, uh, I guess maybe that's something uh, you know uh, I wanted to sort of uh, poke at specifically again is that you know Kirk seems to be trying to come up with these justifications for his obsession to everybody else, and he just ends up being uh, re- uh, repeatedly uh, proven to be true, and it's not just all like him trying to build up a, a, a narrative to uh, keep let people do what he wants, and that's kind of cheap writing, honestly. A little bit, yeah. Also, it gets into a thing like it. It doesn't make him less of a problem in command. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's kind of this You're thing. Sure. I try to avoid pathologizing language generally, but there's this thing I remember from a bit ago that like someone can still be paranoid, even if the thing they're worried about happening is true. Yes, and uh, you know, there's the the, the joke about uh, it's like, well, you know, it's, don't call it paranoia if I'm right. No, it's still you're still having a certain uh, you know a mental frame of mind that is very much an irrational paranoia here, and uh, you know you're going to be you know, uh, you know you're fixated on this uh, you know the, the subjects here to an unhealthy degree, and it could very very easily lead you to uh, make decisions that are going to be you know, potentially dangerous to you and others. Yeah, it's more about how you're reacting to the situation, less the situation 
being correct or not. Exactly. And so to sort of try to, you know, excuse it, it's like, oh, everything I said was true. That, that doesn't excuse how you're behaving with respect to the things. Uh, you know, especially if you're basing, you know, you know, early on, just sort of asserting these things without you know, proof, and just happens to get lucky later. Yeah, this is the this is one that we've just seen over and over again. I'm a little tired of it by now. In original track, the the only message for this episode is stop questioning the captain, you idiot. It doesn't <laughs> matter what he's doing; he will be proven right in the end. Hmm. In fact, even in the last episode, where it's like the captain is very, very, very definitely not fit for command yes anyone else will be worse so uh you better let him keep his job otherwise and do just not be good at it anymore and otherwise everyone will die oh god yeah we've gotten back into that kind of hobbesian idea of any leader is better than no leader because the no matter how bad a leader is they're better than the than something else and it, you know it's, it doesn't matter if that other you know you know that something else is a just a different leader you know, it's it, the unknown leader is, is so much horribleness and ah, yep, I'm so tired of that trope. <laughs> this is such a weird bit of competent man writing that mm-hmm. I know was very common in this era, but just this like never question anything. You're always right. All you have to do is stick to your guns, keep going, ignore anyone else critiquing what you're doing because you know you're right. And that's all that matters because you are right. Uh, and so my own writing, I try to uh, invoke the trope in order to uh, you know, sort of po- poke these exact holes into it that, oh, this person was actually very wrong and they kind of screwed up and they, they got, you know, their, their assumptions about the situation were completely wrong and that actually has consequences. Uh, though up until that point, they seem to be, oh, everything's falling into place. Everything's great. I'm right about everything. Oh, wait. Whoops. Um, hmm. Well, this complicates things, and I don't know how to react to this anymore because I'm no longer super competent. Huh. Well, see, you're operating in a postmodernist <laughs> mindset. This show yep. <laughs> was still smack dab in the middle of modernism where you don't question things. Yep. <laughs> What's wrong with you academics questioning things? You know, everything has been ar- all all knowledge was uh, you know determined to uh, you know a perfect degree in uh, 1949 or something. <laughs> Nothing has been needed to be developed since then. We knew everything we ever needed to know during the Enlightenment, and it's just been downhill since. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't have particularly anywhere else to go. Yeah. I, yeah. I was just going to base the stuff we talked about already. So. Uh, um, I guess we could talk about gas clouds. Gas clouds! They're gas. They're liquids. And so <laughs> yeah, sometimes energy. Yeah, the physicality of this uh, this alien creature is nonsensical to a s- sort of bizarre degree. And there is no really way from the physics angle to sort of try to make any sense of it. Because it can change its chemical structure or even atomic structure, apparently. Uh, on a whim it phases in between matter and energy whenever it feels like and it's necessary for the plot it can fly through space using apparently some sort of gravitational trick or something like that it can do all these other magical things and yet it still requires blood why (laughs) hemoglobin it requires specifically iron yes but iron bonded in a specific way because iron is one of the most common elements in the 
fucking yes. universe. You know, iron is, is is plentiful. It's not as plentiful as like hydrogen and helium, of course, but it is as the sort of uh, dead end of the fusion process, something that pops up pretty frequently in the, in the universe compared to other heavier elements. So why does it need to eat people's blood? I don't know. <laughs> I could... I tried to think about this for a while. I just didn't. I couldn't come up with any sensible explanation other than they just need the vampire that did something freaky. It also has to be mammals specifically, yes, because it can't eat Spock, and we know yes. other aliens have different blood mechanics. Mm-hmm. So it has to eat very specifically humans. Yes, or human-like creatures, or jars full of blood that you just happen to have on uh, tap. Yeah, you keep your blood in a big jar. <laughs> big glass jar too so it's very breakable if the ship shakes <laughs> it's probably transparent aluminum oh yeah, yeah i forgot about that <laughs> yeah so the, the 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 alien gas cloud monster doesn't really make any sense and and why would it have the smell thing going on and if it, ha- it has all these magic powers is it trying to communicate with others of its kind is this just some Sort of like uh, secreting of uh, you know uh, you know pheromones something like that. It's like I'm in this state, so I'm going to feel like this. And apparently, it hits Kirk's brain the proper way, so he understands it. Yes, I mean it's an ant. No, it's like a space ant. Yeah, yeah it, nothing about this thing makes any sense at well, all. The vampire <laughs> thing brings that in a little bit because you have the kind of vampire mind trickery, slightly psychicness. Mm-hmm. So they basically took vampire tropes and put it in a gas cloud. Yes. Which, given that we are going to come up on an episode in not too long where they meet Jack the Ripper, I don't know why they didn't just include a vampire. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Complete with, you know, cape and, uh, you know, and uh, widow's peak and uh, long teeth. Yeah. (laughs) And a a very, very, very pale uh, complexion. Oh, crud. That's next episode. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise! (laughs) Didn't even realize. Oh, that'll be fun. But before we talk about next episode, it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Well, everybody, we've tallied up all the various points, all the game show, uh, you know, various special events and, uh, going down the slime slide and all that have, have been completed by our various contestants here and uh, we've we got some awards to give out for their for their hard work and uh, their their excessive collection of points our first one is the red shirt junior award which goes to garavik for being the son of someone who died which either means he's a dead man walking or has plot immunity it seems in this case he got lucky and got the latter one what does he win Gapwin? Garavik, i think needs something a little more abstract because he will win a better father figure. Because daddy died and he picked up Kirk. No. No, hmm. no, no. I think no. i got to agree with you. Hmm. Maybe, we'll, maybe we'll run into some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, time-traveling uh, warp expert or, uh, you know, uh, super admiral. Hmm. Our second award is the Ahab Award, which goes to Kirk for sticking around uh, to totally make sure that Spokes Monsters, totally dead man, fire all phasers and... And damn, getting everyone else killed in the process. It's, it's everything's fine. We got to kill this thing. What does he win, Gepwin? Kirk wins ambergris, the stuff from the whale's stomach that lets you create perfumes so that he can smell as good as a gas monster. <laughs> I guess he's going to be, uh, 
Yeah, enjoying his uh, odors for quite some time then. Hmm. Our third award is the Too Weird to Die Award, which goes to Spock for just kind of ignoring that death gas cloud just because he has different biochemistry. What does he win, Geplin? Spock wins some red corpuscles so that McCoy can stop making fun of his blood for being green and he can fit in. Hmm. Uh, I'd recommend that Spock uh, just reuse that uh, glass bottle they brought down the planet. It's not filled with anything other than uh, used plasma. So, you know, just keep it in his, in his, uh, in his uh, quarters. So, great. <laughs> our final award is the Scratch and Sniff Alien Award, which goes to our alien space cloud for having smell vision or something. And it's a means to express its state of mind, everybody, man. What does he get, Gepwin? Or it get. Hmm. The gas cloud wins a set of Mr. Sketch scented markers so that it can make scent art and express itself in visual and scented ways. Hmm. Expanding its means of communication might mean it's going to be uh, uh, less exploded by antimatter weapons. Also, who hmm. remembers those things? Those were awful. <laughs> Hated those. They, like every, every kid in the world had one of those and they were all horrible. Thankfully, we've moved on to a more enlightened time. Wait a moment. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> Captain, uh, that's all I got here today. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I'd like to thank all our contestants and I hope everyone has a wonderful day. I hope everybody enjoys their prizes and thank you for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. <laughs> Alright, as we already spoiled a little, next episode is called Wolf in the Fold. Yes. It's it's, it's puppies, there's gonna be puppies, aren't isn't there? Yeah. Puppies Doggos. Forest doggos. Better known as the malevolent entity known as Jack the Ripper. Dun 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 Yeah. I I've never actually seen this one, but uh, I've heard neither. of it. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so a, a, a funny thing is, you know, that, that uh, Jack the Ripper is just kind of one of those things that just, as far as, like, uh, you know, random killer type things that happen throughout history, is one of the ones that's kind of, it's, it's kind of weird that it became so famous to me, so, hmm. I guess it's just the, the unsolvedness. Yeah. People like the unsolved serial killer thing, and some of the stuff was, like, I think it was one of the more early, like, publicized serial killings. Mm-hmm. We can uh, sell more papers if we have more sensational news. And so the killer strikes again! Yeah, I'm sure we need to do a little bit more research on that, because I'm just going off of some random things I remember from doing research on this for a paper like 10 years ago and uh most of my uh, experience with jack the ripper is through media so <laughs> so you're you went up ahead on me on this already so <laughs> i don't isn't a monstrous evil infests mr scott kills women hmm wait this is terrible scotty's the most competent member of the crew yeah how in the world are they going to do anything <laughs> Everyone's doomed. Oh, God. Scotty's gone crazy. He's killed people. Oh, man. Uh, well, I guess we will find out how bad this is when you can join us next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Scotty gets away with murder. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, 
Pocket Cast Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>